who among us doesn't enjoy a good mystery? And especially when solving it means that I get to bring out my competitive side, even if it's just me against the clock, I just can't wait to uncover all the secrets. So June's Journey is a game that is completely up my alley, and I think you'll love it too. In June's Journey, a hidden object mystery game, you play as June Parker, who's on a quest to solve her sister's murder and uncover her family's many secrets. Each chapter brings you deeper into the story, and it's set in the Roaring Twenties, so beyond uncovering clues, you get to experience the glitz and glamour of the time. June's Journey is definitely not a game I play mindlessly, which I love because I get genuinely invested and a lot of it is a race against time, so there's a little fun added pressure of trying to find the clues as quickly as you can in each scene. There are also tons of ways to customize the island that you're on, learn more about the characters, and then new chapters are added weekly, so you really can't run out of things to explore. So if you think you're up to solve this case, download June's Journey for free today on iOS or Android or play on PC through Facebook games. June needs your help, detective. Welcome, my vagina. This is Jesse Karen. And this is Rebecca Frank. And here we are again, having our current historical, hysterical, and infuriating conversation about our lives as vagina-having organisms. All content made up on the spot, but probably researched. Just kidding, fools. It's definitely researched. <laughs> Hey y'all, uh, we have a great interview today. Before that, uh, please remember to donate to us on glow.fm slash welcome my vagina. We could really use your support. It'd be dope AF, um, like the kids say these days. Uh, <laughs> we have a great interview with Donna Freitas today. Um, our apologies uh, for the sound quality. It was a Skype interview, so there's a little bit of feedback, but it's a really important story. So we hope that you... Give it a listen. Yeah. So we spoke with Donna about her recent book that just came out. It's called Consent, a Memoir of Unwanted Attention. Mm. And it uh, documents her experience through graduate school with a professor who stalked her. Mm -hmm. um, and the professor uh, happened to be a priest. So there's a lot of levels of nuance here. Um, it really, this book, I can't recommend, it's a tough read, but I can't yeah. recommend it enough. It, um, get, it really gets into the layers of, um, what it is to be given this level of unwanted attention, what it is to be stalked and the ways in which women, largely because of how we have been brought up in the society in which we are brought up, tie ourselves in knots to try and justify mm -hmm. inappropriate behavior by men and specifically men in power and religious men mm -hmm. um, to our own detriments and not to say that it is the fault of the woman but that like the way that the patriarchy comes out in this story yeah. is amazing yeah. so we spoke with her about that and about title nine and about Title IX because it it failed her in a lot of ways, and the uh, the call the university herself actually did her a disservice and didn't come to her aid at all, really. Yeah, not at all. Actually, Shamed exactly her. the opposite. Yeah. yeah, they like they basically ran the clock on her complaints in order to take the air out of it. Yep. So yeah, it's a it's a really uh, intense, really important read, um, and Donna's incredible. Donna is incredible, and we're really excited to have you listen to this uh, interview. Yeah. So yeah. Stick so around. do it. Do it. Thanks. And then listen to Merkins to, 
for uh for, yeah. for ear bleach. That was really fun. Yeah, listen to Merkins for ear bleach. Okay, sorry, we're just here with our friends. Yeah, sorry guys. Cool. Have a good night. So wait, huh? you're just gonna respect our wishes? Hell yeah, time to change. We also some new respectful stuff. So shake that booty. If you wanna drop that booty, it's First, can you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about yourself? So I'm a writer and a professor, and I live in Brooklyn. And uh, for the last, gosh, maybe 20 years or so, no, not that long, almost 20 years, um, I've been teaching college students. And uh, about 15 years ago, I started researching um college students on campus, in particular, uh, sex on campus and Title IX. And alongside that, uh, I have written a lot of books, um, some of which are nonfiction and about the research that I've done on campus. Um, but uh, alongside all that research, I also became, I, I started writing fiction and creative nonfiction. And so I've sort of had these parallel lives. And we recently just got this opportunity to read your book, Consent, which um, was awesome and infuriating and uh, um, kind of like... And relatable. Yeah, super relatable. Oh, that's depressing that it was relatable. I know. (laughs) Like thematically, I would say. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's my most recent book. And I think it's probably, of all the books that I've written... Um, maybe the book I'm most proud of, uh, because, uh, I never thought I would write that book. I never thought I would write that story about my past. And I, I actually wasn't planning on writing it Mm -hmm. when I started it. And, um, even after I got going, I wasn't sure if I was really going to Mm -hmm. actually write the story about what happened to me in grad school. Um, but then once I really let myself, it kind of came pouring out. And so I'm excited it exists. Yeah. Yeah. What made you, what made you write it? Well, I was actually, uh, writing a book about title nine on campus. Mm -hmm. I wrote this manifesto about uh, sexual assault and sexual harassment on campus. And it's, it's called consent on campus, a manifesto. So, um, (laughs) cause when I was writing, I was like, Oh, I'm really writing a manifesto. Maybe I'm going to call it a manifesto. And, um, it is related to all of my work, um, on college campuses with young women and sex on campus and having been, um, a frequent speaker at universities and colleges for the last 15 years or so. And I really felt like I had something to say. And so I decided to say it. And, uh, while I was working on that book, I had these two different moments, um, that really forced me to reckon with my past on this issue. And one moment was, uh, as I was first working on the book, I, I realized that I had this moment where I, it suddenly dawned on me that, the argument I was making in the book, I wouldn't have been able to make without my own experience. And that was really the first time for me that my past and my present collided in my brain. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I'm pretty classic. I have PTSD from my experiences and I'm pretty classic in that sense. Like I, um, one of the things I wrote about in the memoir was I feel like there's a vault in my brain that mm-hmm. hides away this experience from the rest of me. And it really felt like this vault door suddenly opened and these memories came crashing out. And so that was one memory. And then I had another, I was, I was working on a chapter about title nine specifically in that book. 
And I was, I was sitting right here at this coffee table. I'm sitting at my coffee table mm-hmm. at home and uh, just like I am right now. And I suddenly just realized that I had made a Title IX complaint. Like it was like I had, it's not that I didn't know that I had done it, but mm-hmm. I, I hadn't ever, I hadn't really let myself think about it mm-hmm. in the context of all that work. And I know that sounds crazy, but um, nope, it was that it moment. <laughs> It, it was that moment that made me open up a document and start writing. And so, um, so I really had some pretty intense experiences writing that other book, but that's what led me to write the memoir. Yeah. It's yeah. really incredible. Like even just like the journey through reading it, just thinking about how hard our brain works to protect us, you know, and like kind of seeing that obviously not in real time, but in your retelling of the story, like how hard your obviously like very honed and good brain was working to protect yourself from what was going on. And like, it makes so much sense. I'm glad that makes sense to you. <laughs> so <laughs> I, Sometimes it makes me feel crazy. Like I've really had um, the last like two years or so since I had, you know, started working on the memoir and then I realized it was going to come out and I, I've been like, wow, here I am. And I've been this person who speaks about title nine and how could I possibly have separated this so intensely in my brain? And it's made me feel like a crazy person. Um, but it also has, I, I have a, um, a friend who's a psychologist who's who I wrote who's in the book actually and she has been telling me for a really long time about you know the relationship between the you know the body and how the body has memories that the brain you know it doesn't really let the brain have mm-hmm. or, or um, be conscious of and I feel like I am living proof of that you know yeah. given how um, intensely my my brain and my body have separated that part of my life from my present yeah yeah, especially just considering um, like the manner, the manner through which a lot of this happened in terms of like just that it was the, the psychological, uh, the psychological part of it, and the ways in which um, he managed to navigate around mm-hmm. the edges of what would be considered okay mm-hmm. in order to make you feel like you didn't have any power because like in order to make you ask yourself, well, what has he actually done? Yes, he was really good at what he did. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, And I think, you know, one of the things that, I think the other thing that made me realize, oh, I'm going to write this memoir or I'm going to write this book was the the voice of it. Um, Mm -hmm. When... I guess when I I really let myself start writing, I actually... um, it was like I suddenly found the voice of the person I was while that was happening to me. And I had this internal monologue going all the time while this was going on in my life because um, this person, my professor, who was at that point stalking me, he was so constantly around and I was so constantly dodging him and mm-hmm. dealing with all of his overtures that I, I just kind of had this constant narrative in my head when I was walking through the world, like if I was coming out of my classroom, like, okay, here's what you're going to do. You're going to leave the classroom and you're going to do this and you're, you know, and I was talking myself through all the time. And I think, um, I think, I hope that the voice of the memoir really represents it. It was like once suddenly out of the blue, I could hear the, that voice, 
um, you know, I sort of reached into my past and and grabbed it out of me. And it's funny because um, some of the critiques of the book have said that there's a lot of repetition, and I'm like, oh no, that's just the voice of the person that I was. And it was no, like but talking I, myself through. Yeah. <laughs> But I also kind of love that because through the entire book, you're constantly asking yourself and questioning yourself about like what you were wearing, what you said, every interaction that you had with him and holding yourself accountable or responsible in these ways that like I think, you know, um, even in small interactions, I was having a conversation with Rebecca today about how um, on a smaller scale and then realizing that I was saying that, you know, was already diminishing things that have happened to me about how strangers will come up and grab me in places and how my immediate reaction is that didn't happen. That's not possible you know and and questioning myself when something physical happened to me and we don't even talk about the emotional stakes of things that happen to people and um I was wondering that like I don't know how you think this is all connected to power dynamics and how it's connected to us not being heard um and yeah in a long-winded way to ask why you think women have so much doubt in the, in the first place mm-hmm. well I, I mean I think we so strongly do not want it to have happened. I mean, some some of it is that, like, what you know, the idea that somehow um, this thing is happening, and you know, you you didn't want it to, and you you kind of can't believe it is, and you want to get out of it somehow. So there's a way in which I think. I know I was trying to convince myself that it wasn't real because I didn't want it to be real. Right. And because I also knew if it was real, then I had to contend with it. And then if I had to contend with it, it m- might affect my entire future and, mm-hmm. and take it away. And I, I didn't want it to be true. And mm-hmm. so I think the obstacles of, of what I would have to go through if it was true were so big yeah. that I... I just couldn't face them. And so some of it is, is that, and then some of it is, you know, you, you don't want um, someone to be doing this to you. And so I I think self-denial is very powerful, but, and I know for me, um, I knew, and I still know, I think about this all the time that um, going through what I was going to have to go through to make it stop was going to take something away from me. Mm-hmm. And I didn't want to lose that thing. Mm-hmm. Right. And I didn't want to go through, because uh, I knew when I got, to, even if I got to the other side of it, that I was still going to have this thing I was going to have to hide for the rest of my life. Yeah. Which is, which is so insane. I mean, that ties into this is that like, it wasn't your fault what happened. And the fact that like, it's tied to you mm-hmm. and you did nothing to deserve it or invite it or, anything and and the fact that like as women or as like victims or survivors and we can be all three of those things you know um that it's a constant kind of like juggling act to have to shake ourselves free of this thing that has attached itself to us and like how unfair it is well i i still think about how you know i've wondered (laughs) to be honest um you know, what will this, what will having written this memoir and identifying myself as someone who made a Title IX complaint and went through all of this due to my credibility as a researcher and scholar on these issues? Because mm-hmm. I feel like as soon as people know that it's personal, that they suddenly discount um, your ability to be objective about it or to speak about it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I I reinvented myself once and, you know, it's it's kind of like, because these things happen to us and we have to find our ways around them, we're still, we're in the situation where we keep having to reinvent ourselves. Yeah. And there doesn't seem to be um, an easy way through. 
to the other side. And so I think that's one of the things, you know, I've, I've actually had people, people that I care deeply about and that I respect tell me, um, you know, when I was, when I was writing the manifesto and then when I decided to write the memoir that I was like, I, I shouldn't do it cause I was going to lose all my credibility. Mm-hmm. And I was like, wow. Okay. So what my choices are, um, retain my credibility and stay silent about this or mm-hmm. speak about it and lose my credibility. Yeah. So it's so interesting here, like hearing that and like hearing all the women who've been coming forward in their own experiences and, and having those accusations that um, I don't know that that we're in it for money or fame or something like that. Um, when in reality, <laughs> if only. right? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And but it's, it's like yeah. reading your memoir, like gives you even honestly, to me, more credibility, because mm-hmm. it's like you went into this field having had this experience without with your brain not making those connections and then coming to terms with like part of the reason why you went into this, like tracing it back and looking and being like, I have a connection to this because I see problems in the way that, um, like the way the institutions fail us and title nine, which we'd really like to talk to you about a little bit. Um, and, uh, you know, enablers talking about the woman in HR, you know, you see all of that stuff, which, which gives you, an angle that allows you to ask the important questions that I think a lot of people aren't asking. Um, well, I'm glad, <laughs> I'm glad that you think it's asking important questions. I really, in, in a lot of ways, I wanted the memoir to muddy the waters and mm-hmm. because I, I feel like my, my experience was so complicated and as most people's experiences are. Um, and I think often we want to oversimplify things because I think we want people to be survivors. We don't want them to be victims anymore, or we want things to be very clear cut. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that they are. And we want, um, something like, you know, title nine or these different laws or policies that we put on the books. We want them to, to help people. Um, but at the same time, you know, actually when I, when I think about my situation, which was, you know, I had this very powerful professor who was in a position to affect my future in this, in this huge way. And for me to actually climb all the hurdles that I needed to, in order to use title nine, mm-hmm. uh, it was just so, it was just almost impossible, you know, to, to get there. And so, you know, I think about how, when we, when we talk about, about Title IX, for example, on campus today, um, we we present things like it's so simple, like, hey, there's this policy and you can use it if something happens. And I'm sitting there thinking, you know, just even getting to that place in your brain where you're like, okay, um, I'm going to use Title IX or like, you know, or when we teach about consent and we're like, no means no, yes means yes. I'm like, well, try say no, try saying no mm-hmm. for real to your professor. Like right. who's <laughs> a priest. Yeah. yeah. But, but also someone like, I mean, part of like the ask when we're selling, when we're telling people to say no, especially when there's a big power differential, whether yeah. it's your boss or your professor or whoever it is, you're essentially asking, um, a person, generally a young woman, to completely strip away all that power and act like that person is some dude at a bar who's bothering you. Right. And that's a really big ask. Mm-hmm. And I, I feel like um, so much of what we teach is over oversimplifies, partly because we want it to be simple, because it's mm-hmm. so complex and, and we're trying to fit it into boxes that we can legislate. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, looking at Title IX, you mentioned 
like halfway through the book, I want to say that you have issues with um, the way that mandatory reporting works with Title IX and just how it further victimizes people because it takes the, again, takes their power away from them in terms of like how they want to see things move forward. And I was wondering whether like, how would you want that? I'm so confused about how it would look alternatively. Like how do we, how do we have people come forward so that people aren't getting away with these horrible things, but also keep the power in the hands of those who are being victimized? How do we do that? I mean, I think it's hard, but I I also know that, um, I know that I, I don't think I would have ever come forward. I would have, I don't know what I would have done. Uh, I probably would have just left grad school and not finished like eventually. Um, I was so scared to accuse this person that, um, if I had known that telling someone at the university, even someone I trusted, we're not talking HR, like just the first person would have triggered some sort of mechanism up the chain. I would have never done it. Right. And because I would have been too intimidated and I think I would have just continued to suffer or I would have not graduated. And I think that's its own tragedy. And so I think, um, I think it's a slower process than we're making it maybe, you know, um, Mm -hmm. I know that one of the most important things that happened to me was, um, the person I told saying, you know, what do you want to happen next? Mm -hmm. And, you know, putting the power in my hands and saying, you know, I am here for you, whatever, you know, whatever's going to happen, like I'm going to, you know, we're going to do this together. And, and I really, um, it was such an important moment for me. And I'm not sure what we do, but I I also think that one of the things we haven't really figured out yet is, you know, who can we really trust in these situations? Because it's still going to go up the chain to the human resources department Mm -hmm. and to all, you know, all these people who are also advocating on the institution's behalf. And I certainly learned the hard way that when the institution is involved, they're not really your advocate or not necessarily. I think things have shifted, but, um, but then there comes, you know, the question of how do we hold these people accountable? And, you know, I had someone at a book event I did, I had two people get really upset with me (laughs) because, um, in, in the memoir, I don't use his name Mm -hmm. and they really wanted me to come forward with his name. And, um, you know, I, I said, you know, no, because this is one way of not allowing this person to follow me for the rest of my life. Cause as soon as his name is affiliated with the book and with me, like that's it, you yeah. know, the story yeah. becomes about him Absolutely. and this was my turn to have a voice. But one of the things that they were talking about at my event was, um, what if he's done this to someone else and don't I feel responsible? And, you know, I was so, um, I, I didn't answer the question very well when well, um, during it's my pretty shocking. and then I, yeah. well, I couldn't stop thinking about it after. And I thought, Oh wow, that was, I was victim blamed at my own event. Yeah. And, but then I also, but I was so tongue tied when they said that, because of course I worry about whether or not he did this to somebody else. Yeah. Um, I worry about it all the time. Um, 
But then I thought, um, what about the fact that I did, I did, I came forward, I came forward and I told all the people that I needed to, and ultimately it was up to them and they did nothing. Right. And so like, I can't be blamed for the fact that sometimes institutions know and they still do nothing and they often do nothing. Yeah. Yeah. That's so unfair to put all the onus on you after that. Like it's just tacking on to the trauma. It's somehow our responsibility to, to endure whatever the behavior was and then also to fix it. Right. Yeah. All that to say, I'm I'm really against mandatory reporting because mm. I just know that coming forward was one of the hardest things I've ever had to do. Coming forward to a friend, yeah, not, not even someone you know, an official person, and I I just think it's so precarious, like those moments of decision. And if you add more weight to them, yeah. I'm worried that too many people are scared to come forward and, and also that, that taking away of someone's agency all over again and saying, you have no choice because you told me this thing, you have just started up this chain of events. And I think that's really frightening for a victim. Yeah. Yeah. You, you write a lot about women being punished for daring to have fulfilling dating lives and satisfying relationships and that you were happy in your sexual prowess and confident that you could investigate and enjoy sex. And um, at some point you mentioned that you were stupid with power and that you would be punished for it. How do you think our society that lives under the umbrella of patriarchy punishes women for being sexually empowered? Oh, I mean, let, let us count the ways. Right? <laughs> so, I mean, I just think even, I think just you know, <laughs> I was so, um, I was a very like happy, like sexually self-adjusted person. Is that yeah. a phrase? I don't know. I was like, I, I was really like, I dated people. I did what I wanted and I, I wore what I wanted. I felt like a sexual being. Like I just, I didn't hide that part of myself mm-hmm. and like I enjoyed that part of myself. And, you know, then suddenly I was, you know, in the middle of grad school, not hiding that part of myself. And yeah. afterwards I couldn't stop thinking about, um, what did, like, I shouldn't have done that. Like, I shouldn't right. have done that. I shouldn't have been this person in the outfits that I wore because it was so unselfconscious in so many ways. Like, I just, I, I was who I was and I didn't try to hide any part of me when I was in graduate school. And I feel like I was roundly punished for that. And, um, you know, I think that this is what society does. This is what we do to girls too mm-hmm. about their sexuality. We teach them to fear it, I think. Yeah. Um, because the world uh, can punish them for it, or mm-hmm. because we raise um, boys and men to see um, women expressing their sexuality and desire in a way that is always an invitation to do whatever they want or, you know, to, for attention. And I think rather than raising boys and men to respect women's sexuality, um, I think we raise them to try to own it and to try to take it. And so, um, so when you, when you have, you know, a girl or a young woman who is confident in this way, it's taken as a, a come on, I think. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Many men. And so therefore you're just by being, by expressing this part of yourself, it's like you're asking for it. And that that's the thing. Yeah. Like, I think that's how men interpret it. And, and how we teach them to. Well, yes, yes, exactly. And then we, so how I, we adjust our behavior. I'm trying to blame myself as I say this. Right. Like, it sounds like I am, but no. like that's, I mean, you know, we, no, we raise know. men to, yeah. to understand things that way. Totally. So. It's also, it's so hard, especially like, there's such especially like now there's such conflicting messages about trying to get 
women to be, you know, confident and wear what you want, do it for you, like all this kind of stuff. And at the same time, all of this, what you experienced is still happening. At the same time, we're getting these dual messages. And so it becomes like, be conf- if you're not confident, you're doing something wrong. If you're too confident, you're doing something wrong. Mm-hmm. And we're put in this incredibly impossible place where like we're responsible for what happens to us and also responsible for how other people interpret things yes can how do you contend with that like how do you it's uh, it's just so like, I just kept <laughs> I kept thinking that while I was reading your book I was just like she got to just be herself that's amazing and then this man had to come and take it yep <laughs> I mean I think that's the that's the dilemma right we I mean because we we want I think we want girls and young women to feel liberated I mean that's what that is right mm-hmm. you know to, to really be liberated it's to be able to express yourself however you want and, yeah however you want in every different way and um, to have that be safe like to feel safe to express yourself and um, but of course we live in a world where you can't control how other people's how other people respond to you mm-hmm. and okay. I feel like that's the um, that's the thing that, you know, in, in the context of fact, so badly for girls and women to be liberated in this way. But I think some, you know, and then we, you know, we, we teach girls and women that there is no such thing as asking for it. And, you know, just because of how you dress doesn't mean that it's, um, you know, it's your fault if something happens. And we, we teach people this message but then there's the reality of you dress a certain way you go out into the world and you're exposing yourself to people who don't care about that Mm -hmm. don't respect that message yeah and who who come at you and you know that's the that's the place where like the feminist teaching fails you know like it doesn't quite work on the on the ground and you know i feel like oh i was living proof of that except I feel like so much of um, so much of the answer lies in those questions about, okay, so, you know, if this is how the world responds to a girl in a short skirt, then we got to fix the world because it's not her fault. Mm -hmm. And, you know, what can we do to um, raise boys and men who aren't perpetrators? You know what? Why is it like one of the things that I ask all the time when I go to campuses and I talk about 1009 and is okay so how have we somehow arrived in our culture at a place where the passed out body of a girl at a party becomes a site for sex mm-hmm. because you know we can say well she drank until she passed out but it's not that that is just like causing She's a guy person. to look to say like and his friends like oh look a passed out woman let's have sex with her yeah yeah so those are the things we need to fix mm-hmm. not the um this issue of how much you know how much did you drink or why are you wearing that skirt or why are you walking around the world in that way yeah it's like why do people think that that then gives them permission to do whatever the fuck they want yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. Why is that? I mean, really, why is that? Yeah. I ask that a lot on ca- campuses. <laughs> yeah. Well, so, have you gotten an answer? Yeah. Tell us. <laughs> people, you know, people always get so har- horrified when I um, when I ask that question. Yeah. Uh, like, how have we gotten to this point? But I'm like, no, no, no. We need to talk about this yeah. because we're at that point because this happens a lot, actually. Like, people see time. a passed out person and then and then say, look, an opportunity for sex. Right. And so what is what is going on there? You know, what is it about um, asserting power over someone else? Like, why are we teaching that to men? Why is that a way to prove your masculine masculinity in our culture? Like, where is that coming from? And how can we fix it? We're also teaching them that they can get away with it because they do. Yeah, so much. 
And well, like, everybody gets away with a lot. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, think about like, God, like walking down the street and seeing somebody in crisis and not thinking, how can I help them? But instead, how can I help myself? Mm-hmm. You know, and what a fucked up and like backwards way to think about the world. It like, it just boggles my mind. It really does. <laughs> I, I always, um, one of the things that I, I talk a lot about when I go to college campuses is, you know, what does it mean to be a sexually liberated person? What is, what is, what is sexual self-position? Like, what does that really mean? And I think, um, college students today associate sexual liberation with, um, I have a lot of sex all the time, (laughs) you know, or like, you know, I just have unthinking sex or I can treat people like objects. Like often it's, um, I can have sex with whoever I want and not give a shit. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, that's not sexual liberation. Like sexual liberation is actually like, first of all, like it, it involves considering consent. Like you have to consider your partner. Consent is a, is a, is concern for your partner. It's actually not objectifying your partner. So your ability to objectify your partner and show them that you don't care about them mm-hmm. is actually not sexual liberation. I right. think that's a recipe for a lot of problems. It's a recipe for not caring about consent. Yeah. And so I think sexual liberation has to do with, you know, a sense of, um, concern for your partners and then concern for yourself. You have to be able to ask yourself, who am I? And, you know, how do I want to be treated? What does it mean, um, to be in relation with this other person in this way? Like you have to, you have to ask questions about desires. Like, what is it that I desire? And you have to be able to answer those questions. And I think most of the students I speak to are so, disempowered around asking questions about sex. They're, they sort of have inherited a framework for what it means to be a sexual person in college, and they're kind of performing it without thinking. And what I really want is for um, the students I speak to to be thinkers about sex, because I feel like that's, as soon as you're a thinker about sex, you head toward liberation and empowerment. And I think consent becomes just part of the equation. Because once you're thinking, it can't not be. Right. Yeah. Cause you, when you're thinking you have to consider. Yeah. You're just considering your partner. You're asking yourself, what do I want? And if you're asking yourself, what, what do I want? Then you should also be asking, what does my partner want? Yeah. <laughs> does my partner want to be here? Can like my partner, <laughs> like my partner conscious? Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Step one <laughs> is your partner conscious. That's number one. <laughs> oh my God. Number one on the agenda is the partner right. conscious. Yeah. Right? <laughs> get help yeah exactly yeah exactly oh Oh, my gosh um so along these lines like in the last I mean you know the second wave of me too since what 2017 um and with you know everything that happened in the catholic church and these like I don't know people wanting to call them reckonings I don't really feel that golden parachutes really and like reinventions of careers really count as being held accountable for things. But um, do you think that this is like a step, are we taking a step in the right direction? Or is this, sometimes it just feels like like another way to distract and like redirect conversation away from the really hard things. I, I think we, I wanna be hopeful. I think we are taking steps. I think, um, you know, after 2011 when, um, the Obama administration sent out their emails, you know, their, their letters about Title IX. And I think, 
you know, we had the hunting ground come out. There's, I think there have been so many steps, you know, Emma Sokowitz, uh, Columbia, there've been so many very public um, reckonings with what's going on on campus and then in general across society. And I think these are all important. I think it is changing things, but I think we have a really long way to go. And I feel like there's a few steps forward and a lot of steps back often. And mm. I think what's clear to me now is that we're talking in a way that we weren't when I started with this conversation back in 2006, 2007, when I started asking these questions and then a university started inviting me to talk about sex on campus. They didn't want me to talk about sexual assault and sexual harassment. Mm -hmm. And it was something that when I brought it up, they were like, we don't need to talk about that. And I'm like, no, 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 we do. And so there was a kind of resistance to it. Except after 2011, suddenly all the doors opened mm -hmm. to that conversation in a way they hadn't been there before. And I think the doors are open for the conversation. But, um, you know, step number one, we've got to get uh, the harasser and assaulter in chief out of office. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I have this moment, but before Donald Trump got elected, when Moshe Michelle Obama gave that speech, um, like I thought everything's going to change with sexual harassment and sexual mm -hmm. assault in this country for women and girls when she gave that amazing speech, um, after, you know, the access Hollywood tape came out yeah. and yeah. then he was elected and I thought, oh my gosh, nothing like it's, yeah. it's worse than, than ever. Um, but then, you know, me too happened. And so we're moving forward. Um, but I think we, you know, we just have a long way to go. I think it's still a really tough topic for um, for most people, and I think it will always, always be hard for um, for people to come forward. Like that, not yeah, nothing yeah. changes that part. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I just, I don't know. One of the things that keeps like sticking with me, I watched um, the loudest voice about Roger Ailes, which was like super big trigger warning on that one. Um, but God, it made me. I was like these fucking dudes get to die, you know, like they do all this shit and then they just go and die, you know, and like, don't have to have to be punished At all. for any of the shit that they did. And meanwhile, like these women that against all odds, you know, stood up or ones who lost everything and they have to live with that forever. And these fuckers get to die. Yep. <laughs> yeah. You know, I just, um, I did this really cool thing. It's going to come out in maybe uh, a few weeks where, um, there's this, there's this like new webzine that I got to write this letter for. They were collecting letters. You could write a letter to anybody you want, fiction or um, dead or alive. And and they asked me to write if I wanted to write a letter to my stalker. Mm -hmm. And I was like, I don't know. And then one morning I like opened up my laptop and I was like, do I want to write a letter? And then like the first line popped into my head and then I poured out this giant letter. And I was like, apparently I wanted to write a letter oh, wow. to this person. And, but one of the things that I was writing about in the letter was sort of, um, which is, it's in a very different voice than the memoir, which is interesting to notice for me, <laughs> but, um, it's very, very, you know, intense and sarcastic in a lot of places, but I was like, oh yeah, by the way, um, when I didn't become the professor, I thought I would be, I became a writer mm, <laughs> and yeah. by the way, you know, you know, I used some of those literary skills I acquired and I wrote a memoir about you. Yeah. And I think um, it's it's still really heartbreaking to me that I'm not the professor I thought I would be. And I don't know if I'll ever quite get over that. That's like a wound that's just a part of me. 
but I, I did become something else and I became this writer and I've written a lot of books and I'm really proud of the person that I became and the ways that I've used my voice. But I also feel grateful that I became a person with a voice that could write that memoir because yeah. it felt really good to get it out of me. Mm -hmm. And I'm glad I became something that let me um, have a voice, even if it was in a different sphere. So, um, so that I did become something else. It's not what I thought I would be, but I, I am proud of the person that I am despite what happened. And you're using all of this to like teach people and, I was reading this and I was I was also like a little frustrated because it oh, like this is we need more of this because there's nuances. And like you said, like it, it talks about the muddy waters and how things aren't black and white and the things that we ignore and the things that there isn't an outline for a victim to come forward. But we do need to talk about this so that people feel more comfortable even talking to their friends or however they choose to to take their path of what happened. But I, I think we need more of this. It lets people know that they're not alone. Yeah. Well, thank you. So I'm really happy that feminist people are talking about it. Yeah. <laughs> I was actually really afraid that um, that people would resist the fact that I ask so many questions about myself and what I did wrong or that they would be upset about that. And because I was trying to be as honest as I possibly could. And yeah. I was worried that if because I had so much self-doubt and that comes through, that, um, that, uh, you know, all the feminist people that I love would sort of close the door on a conversation, um, because it's, it's not the conversation we're supposed to have, or other, I feel like I share all the thoughts that I also know I'm not supposed to have, or that I, I would, that I've yeah. tried to talk myself out of having. And so I feel really grateful that, that you all are open to talking about all this stuff. Yeah, so. no, that's my favorite part, honestly, because that's the doubt that people go through that yeah. nobody talks about and so it's a really vulnerable book in the way that you do talk about how much doubt you had and and like what goes through a person's mind <laughs> sorry her microphone I'm laughing because my microphone dropped <laughs> <laughs> and just like how have we had I've had this conversation like I've had those doubts and those thoughts myself and conversations with almost all of my girlfriends you know and trying to be like no you didn't do anything wrong I, and, and like how many times have I said I totally get that I to I would feel the same way but you yeah. didn't do anything wrong it's it's so unfortunately it is so universal yeah but it is how was it how was it your how was it my fault kind of thing yeah you know? yeah I feel like we have to have those conversations in public too yeah because I know I know the things I'm supposed to say and think and I do think them in one part of my brain, but my other brain has a whole other list of thoughts. Yep. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it keeps telling me them. It's got like a running, you know, it's got a running commentary. Right. And, and that's the one that I feel like I have to talk. That's like, that's the patriarchy. So the yeah. patriarchy has its own, you know, monologue. And then there's me, the feminist. that's like responding all yeah. the time. Mm -hmm. to talk down the bully of doubt. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, doubt is a bully. Yeah. Yeah. yeah thank you for writing this. And yeah. for sharing it with us. Where can people get it and find you? Um, I'm really tech terrible. <laughs> so, <laughs> but um, if you Google me, you can email me. But, you know, the, the book is available um, at all the bookstores and on Amazon. And, you know, independent booksellers, of course, are the best. Yeah. But, um, yeah. but, yeah, I hope people 
read it and and enjoy it or I just had someone write me and be like this is the worst book I've ever read oh my god I love it so much and I was like oh god oh. okay so um, <laughs> and then she wrote back and she was like that didn't come out right she was like I didn't mean it was the worst book I'd ever read it was just so hard to go through it but yeah. also I loved it I was like okay yeah. so yeah <laughs> Yeah, I know it's not an easy read, but um, yeah. I also someone else told me it read like a psychological thriller, oh and then gosh. she was like, and then I had to remember it was about a real person. I was like, okay, wow, <laughs> yeah, oh my goodness, yeah, it's yeah. it's wild to like yeah. look at it from you know like to to watch it unfold and to like just think about God the like the somersaults that our brains go through to make uh, reasons and excuses for something that we inherently we know is wrong, but we also know that it's going to somehow come back and, and bite, bite us. Right in the butt. Yeah. Yeah. It made it. Yeah. Ugh. Um, the part about the, the letters in the class, I almost like threw the book across the room. Um, <laughs> thank you for that. Thank you for your <laughs> anger on my behalf. Well, thank you so much for your time. Thank, thank you. you. We'll talk to you soon. Yeah. Bye. Bye. Um, bye. If you're still struggling with consent, just imagine instead of initiating sex, you're making them a cup of tea. You say, Hey, would you like a cup of tea? And they go, oh my god, fuck yes, I would fucking love a cup of tea, thank you. Then you know they want a cup of tea. If you say, hey, would you like a cup of tea? And they're like, uh, you know, I'm not really sure. Uh, then you could make them a cup of tea, or not, but be aware they might not drink it. And if they don't drink it, then, and this is the important part, don't make them drink it. So... Uh, we realized after talking to Donna that we don't know very much about Title IX at all. True. It's not about sports only. It's it not is, just about sports. It's about other stuff. So we're going to talk about Title IX next week, but we thought we'd give you a little teaser. Um, so one of the co-sponsors of the Title IX legislation was Edith Green, who was a Democratic representative for Oregon. And she also helped to pass the um, Equal Pay Act. She helped to pass the Equal Pay Act that guaranteed women and men um, equal pay. Oh. Yeah. That's cool. Uh, yeah. So she's pretty fucking awesome. Cool. Yeah. Did you know the that she wanted to be an electrical engineer? Wow. She's amazing. That's part of the reason she became a representative. But her parents laughed and said, quote, don't be silly. You can hear all about Edith next week. <laughs> In two weeks. <laughs> also other stuff. <laughs> okay, bye. <laughs> Just, I'm on a lot of cold medication. <laughs> Just ignore me. <laughs> That's also staying in. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Welcome to My Vagina. It's time for us to slide on out of here. <laughs> you can find us on Instagram at Welcome to My Vagina. On Twitter at Welcome to My Vag. Soon to be on Medium. You can donate to us at Patreon, LiberaPay, PayPal, and uh, Venmo at Welcome to My Vagina. Yeah, become a monthly subscriber. Yeah, yeah, go to welcometomyvagina.com and become a subscriber to our newsletter as mm -hmm. well. You can email us at welcometomyvagina at gmail.com. We like questions and fan art and jingles. And suggestions for future episodes. True. Check out Jesse's awesome videos at on YouTube. Just search for Welcome to My Vagina. Check out Rebecca's awesome writing at franklyrebecca.com. And head on over to morebanana.com to check out all of the awesome projects by our production company. Yeah. And thanks, Kate. Thanks, Kate, for being our amazing, dope-ass fucking producer. <laughs> cool. <laughs> <laughs>